Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs. And I'm Cody Sims. And welcome to My Climate Journey. This show is a growing body of knowledge focused on climate change and potential solutions. In this podcast, we traverse disciplines, industries, and opinions to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and all the ways people like you and I can help. We appreciate you tuning in, sharing this episode, and if you feel like it, leaving us a review to help more people find out about us so they can figure out where they fit in addressing the problem of climate change. Today's guest is Insia Jafferji, co-founder and CEO of Shellworks which is developing sustainable packaging alternatives to plastic that don't compromise on performance or aesthetic. Based in the UK, Shellworks recently raised a seed round of funding to help them scale their micro-based monomaterial packaging via cosmetics companies that are looking for natural packaging alternatives to plastic. A big aha I had during this conversation is that when we talk about excellence in packaging today, we mostly think about companies who create an elegant and exciting open box experience. I usually think of Apple as the gold standard here. But as sustainability continues to gain awareness in the popular conscious, how far away are we from celebrating companies who create small footprints from their packaging? And how do you celebrate something if the goal is for it to not be noticeable in the first place? This is sort of the ultimate challenge with climate and sustainability. If success is positioned as avoiding the worst effects, it can be really hard to gauge success because we don't know what the worst effects are. I was inspired by my conversation with Incia because she clearly brings a no-compromises spirit to what she's doing. She believes that Shellworks can develop packaging that has minimal footprint and is stunning and brand forward. She and I talk about her background, the state of plastic packaging today, how Shellworks came to be, their initial approach to product development, current product lines and traction, and how their non-compromising culture turns internal innovations into a robust product pipeline. Encia, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm really excited today to dive into the world of packaging, which is ubiquitous and all around us. And you all are trying to obviously do something quite different in that space. But maybe before we do, let's dive into your background. So share with us how you came to be focused in this and kind of what your journey looked like along the way. So I'm India. I'm originally from Sri Lanka, actually. So I grew up there and then was fortunate enough to get into Stanford. So that's when I first made my way out into the Bay Area. And I guess I fell in love with making. Like Stanford has this amazing machine shop, which even as a freshman, you can kind of go in and like use all the machines. And I think that was my introduction into like physical products, how you work with them, how you make them. And then kind of, yeah, I mean, at the time I wanted to learn how things were done really on a mass scale. So I went and worked at the very big consumer product firms like Bose for a little bit. I've said Ford for a little bit. And then Apple, where I think you can really, really get to see like the scale at which things are made. But yeah, I mean, I think there was only so much of like optimizing watches I could get behind after some time. And I just felt like I wanted to do something new, but I didn't really understand what. And so I came out to London to do my master's. And that's where I met my co-founder, Amir, who had a love for natural materials, to be honest. So when I met him, he was making a chair out of slime. And he was known in the department of doing like 
he was like the mushroom guy because he had been experimenting with mycelium before it was cool to experiment with mycelium. And I think his love for natural materials and my desire to like make an impact kind of blended into, hey, let's try and get rid of plastics. Well, so much to dive into there. I I first have to ask, so I I have visited Sri Lanka once. It's an unbelievably beautiful country. You must have grown up during the Civil War, I'm guessing. Is that is that true? Yeah, we we did grow up during the Civil War. It's an interesting one because I think as a kid, you don't really know the impacts of what it means until you're an adult. And so I think actually me and my friends have more recently been unpacking what it meant because sometimes you... I don't know, you go for like a cricket match and then you're like, oh, actually we need to go home because there's like shells in the sky and you're like, okay, that's cool. I get to go to my friend's house, but you're a kid. But for the most part, I grew up in the main city, so I was sheltered from it. But I think, yeah, it feels like now is a time when Sri Lanka is actually having some more of like discussion around it and resolution around it. So it's kind of nice to see that that conversation is starting. Awesome. Yeah, thanks. And yeah, so, sorry to non sequitur there, but it just felt like an incredibly interesting and I assume very shaping part of your being having having lived through that. Yeah, it's something subconsciously, I guess, a lot of us in our generation now kind of reconcile of perhaps like how we ended up where we are, like our mentality to, I don't know, just being a bit more appreciative to your lives and what you can do and what kinds of impacts you can make. And I'm curious, living in such different environments from Sri Lanka to San Francisco Bay Area to London, how much that also impacted your desire to work in sustainability and climate change? Different observations you may have had about different parts of the world and how people consume things in different ways. Anything there that you know also helped you tip the scales toward wanting to work on these projects? I think it's twofold. I think living in different countries gives you very different perspectives. So I think, for example, in simple things like in Sri Lanka, I think one of my most vivid memories is that you don't have the ability to think about waste because there are so many other problems, like your access to food, like your basic necessities. And then you go and live in, you know, California, Stanford, where every piece of packaging is recycled quite effectively, like, or effectively in the sense that people have the care to be able to think about it and put effort into that. And then London, which is a little bit of an in-between place because it's a it's a very concentrated city with so many different cultures. I think the place when I think I really started to... The jarring contrast, I think, between the US and Sri Lanka was maybe where I first got instigated because... At Stanford, they inspire you with this confidence that you can really do anything. And then in Sri Lanka, it's a little bit of like a helplessness. And I think for me, I kind of developed a bit of a persevering nature because I was so helpless before, but then I was inspired with the fact that I could do something about these things. Yeah, and London felt like the right place to do it somehow. Yeah, well, let's dive in then and talk a bit about the landscape that you decided to focus on. So before we even dive into Shellworks and your product lines, I'd love to understand the world of packaging today. From where I sit, obviously, so much of what we package things in are made of plastic. But, you know, when I stop and think about it, there are so many different types of plastics that are solving different use cases, right? From food freshness to durability of, you know, products to 
things that need to be clear so that you can see what's in the product, in the box or package, to things that need to be colored to match the branding of, you know, whatever company is trying to sell a thing to you. And I'm sure there are, are, are multiple use cases beyond that. So maybe walk us through the world of packaging as it exists and sort of different types of plastics that, that are involved when we think broadly about the category of packaging. Yeah, I think it's a really great observation because often we think of plastics as one category, but the reality is plastics is actually many materials. And that's partially why you have a problem with managing it. Because in reality, glass is a little bit easier because generally there's one type of glass. But in plastics, there's so many. And in packaging in particular, there was this instinct in order to preserve ingredients, which was our overall goal. But even today, like I think one of our principles, which is a difficult principle, is how do you create monomaterial packaging? Because most packaging is multiple layers of plastic, exactly for the reason that you highlighted. It's ingredients and shelf life and the ability for people to sell through retailers that creates this need for high performance packaging, which requires more than one type of material at the end of the day. I mean, a great example is we've been tackling cosmetic ingredients which with the best of their intention have been trying to move to natural ingredients but then the trouble with natural ingredients is that they're very active and they have a shorter shelf life and so they require maybe more problematic types of packaging something you said just uh, sparked a thought for me which is as more and more retail purchasing is moving to e-commerce one would think that that could enable a different type of package because all of a sudden you don't need something to look great on a shelf somewhere. But I, I don't know that we've necessarily seen that. It feels like things are just taken in the package that, you know, was designed for Walmart and then thrown in a box and shipped somewhere as opposed to completely rethinking the packaging for e-commerce supply chains. Is that accurate or is that starting to change? So I think it's not something that necessarily people think about in their first instinct, but it's where we believe that like education can play a really large role. So some of the things that I feel like were done really successful was, you know, Tetra Pak created a type of packaging that was really critical towards safety and shelf stability and shipping. So they had a very like cool, unique proposition, but then they offered a square piece of packaging and everyone was like, you know what, I'm going to go for this square piece of packaging and figure out how to make it my own through just like printing. Maybe for people who don't know, explain Tetra Pak for, for folks. Oh yeah. So Tetra Pak is... The easiest way to describe it is probably if you've ever bought a milk carton that's square-shaped or a juice box that's square-shaped, it's most likely created by Tetra Pak. It's one of the largest packaging companies in the world. And it's something that we as consumers probably don't recognize, but they've managed to actually simplify in one way versus other packaging in the world still has unique forms, unique types of materials. Everyone's trying to get a sense of you know, and it's it's natural, right? You want to distinguish your brand. And like you said, on a shelf, that makes a huge difference to how well your brand will perform. But I think there is real value in that simplicity that Treasure Pack was able to bring because by doing a single form factor, you are actually able to streamline and simplify and 
it's like the fundamental principle of sustainability is like less is more, honestly. So you're not adding so many different variables that make it complicated. But I think that's, that's not something that's at first obvious. And you kind of need to start telling that story a bit more. Yeah. And, and so do you see that with e-commerce? All of a sudden, people are starting to be able to package product in a way that doesn't require sort of that brand pop to the package? Or, or is that not happening yet? It's not happening yet, in part because of the revival of retail. So I think e-commerce... And it's interesting because when we speak to brands now, there is an element of they'll be like, oh, actually, e-commerce is a good place to start with because it's less, you know, it doesn't have to have such a long shelf life. It could be somewhere where you can start to take more risk, but then ultimately they still end up having to go into retail. And then it's a question of how do you create something that is tied and how could a consumer recognize the brand you can't be too different, unfortunately. So the challenge still exists, but I would say that more people are embracing this narrative that if I'm truly sustainable, I'm truly sustainable, and this is what I'm going to offer and like push consumers into. But then at the same time, some people are still, it hasn't really caught on yet for people to build confidence that if they do the same, they'll still be successful. You know, I want to look at kind of moving even away from plastics, looking at, at something like styrofoam, which I think there was a very successful campaign, you know, a decade or two ago, to some extent, shame companies that were using styrofoam packaging. And, you know, most companies moved away from it. You know, you think of fast food, for example, that had, you know, styrofoam cups. Most have moved to more paper-based product cups. I don't know if they're actually using better materials, but, you know, they're not styrofoam. Do you see the same thing happening with plastics over the next decade, which is there will be, to some extent, companies realizing that they are actually hurting their brand by continuing to use single-use plastics? Almost definitely, because it has such a negative reaction for a consumer now when they see it, especially when they see over-packaging. I mean, it's like your natural reaction, like, why did I need to get three boxes for me to have this product? And I think what makes it easier is once one brand has done it, then another brand has confidence to follow. And then the others are like, oh, I really need to do it because everyone else has been able to do it. So I think in part, we found one of the core reasons is there's a huge desire, but there hasn't been an alternative that requires a company. Usually alternatives have required a company to compromise. So how do you create an ethos that you're not compromising, you're gaining, but let's look at it in a different perspective now. When we think of good packaging, quote unquote good, today we mostly think about beautiful design, right? Like I think of good packaging, I think of Apple almost automatically. As that mind shift changes and good packaging becomes still great design, but also sustainability and reuse and biodegradability, who are leaders today? If I were to think of good packaging in that regard, who are the leaders today that are doing a wonderful job with packaging and not creating a huge footprint around their product? It's a tough one because outside of those who can rely on paper packaging, I don't really have someone who comes to mind, to be completely honest. 
Yeah. Yeah, and it's something that why, like, one of our founding principles is that we have to offer something that's sustainable, performant, and cost-competitive. And for us, performance means both functionality and as well as aesthetic. But, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I can put my finger on a brand and be like, I'm really inspired by, like, a big brand who's done it. Yeah, I mean, it's easier for some industries than others, to be honest, like if you can leverage more cardboard packaging and make that beautiful, then yes, that's amazing. But for those who can't, I don't think there are many options. That sounds like a good opportunity for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was going to say the brand we just worked with, but I felt like that was a little bit too, <laughs> too much. Well, let's get, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that as we start to talk about your traction. But that's great. I do want to hear how people are using your product. But that's very jarring to hear that, like, no big brands yet, like, stand out. I mean, for anyone here who, like, runs award shows on packaging or whatever, like, let's change the narrative, like, from, like, oh, how great this is designed and how it makes me love the brand to, wow, we're, we're using product the right way. I mean, my goodness, it sounds like we're ready for a whole industrial shift on how we think about this thing. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's wild, right? Like, when you think about it at that scale, and especially when you think about, one, the size of the markets and the volume of the problem... But equally, it's an interesting one because it just, it does require just a little disruption. And then I think it will have a ripple on effect. Well, hopefully we start to see the, the design magazines and whatnot create the right carrots and incentives by rewarding the right thinkers going forward. Let's all make that happen, shall we? So let's talk about cosmetics in particular, because I know that's been an area of focus. It sounds like you said one of the big challenges in the cosmetic space is the movement of most of these brands to more natural ingredients that have shorter shelf lives than things that have high preservatives and artificial ingredients in them. What else? Like, what, what are the issues with the cosmetics packaging status quo? And where are you seeing there being a, a, a big opportunity? So I think the main aspect of cosmetics is that it's a little bit like a product. So it is a bit more complicated than your standard piece of packaging because it has multiple components. So if you think about a pump, it's actually made out of seven different materials in most instances, or a lipstick has five different types of plastics. So these are, these are products that cannot be recycled. And I think fundamentally, then you start to ask the question, what, what can you do? You have to use an alternative material. And I think that is probably the hardest part about packaging for cosmetics is the fact that every product is multi-material. Just to make sure I understand, they can't be recycled because they're too complicated mechanically that a recycling facility would have to actually disassemble them in order to recycle them, and no recycling facility has the, the bandwidth or capacity to do that. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah. So if you think about a lipstick, the outside and bottom material are two. Then usually they have like an aluminum canister, and then the bit that swivels up and down is polypropylene, and then there's actually another bit that sometimes is a different material as well. So it's one of those things that at scale... It's quite challenging. Also, lipstick is often small, so it falls through the grates at most recycling centers. And this is quite common for most cosmetic packaging, is that it requires multiple different types of materials that often require different types of end of life. That sounds like a really complicated starting point for you in terms of a business. So how, how did you... How did you go... I mean, we're going to get into everything about your company, but how did that become your primary go-to-market? 
So we also are designers at heart, right? So we care about aesthetics and color and beauty and all of the other aspects that I think may be another packaging company that might not come as easily or it might not be as much of a interest point, right? So for us, we really cared about this. I think the second was it felt like the market was really ready. Like when we approached customers, and I think the third for us was we were a business that didn't want to pilot. And that was a very like strong decision we made is we don't want to do a pilot because a pilot doesn't mean that the product is going to get adopted at scale. But you have to pilot with food companies because they need like 10 million. But in cosmetics, they can sell a thousand or 10,000 and still be a remarkable brand. And so that was kind of the main instigator for us to pick cosmetics is that we didn't need to pilot. We could just sell and then we could get consumer feedback and then we could iterate and test and try again. Super interesting. I mean, I love the clarity around a go-to-market strategy for you. That's very unique, especially in the climate space where almost every company has to go through some round of, you know, multiple year cycle of piloting before seeing revenue. So it sounds like, you know, you tried to pick a category where you you believed you could just go straight to market. And how did you how did those early sales go? I know we're going right into the go to the market piece before you even talked about what the business is, but this is this is interesting. Yeah. Fortunately or unfortunately, I think it depends on how you look at it. We at the time didn't have any money and we had done this as a master's project and we were like, okay, we want to do this further. So we all moved into my colleague's house in Wales who had a workshop and we set a goal that every three months we have to sell something. It doesn't matter what we sell, we just have to sell something. And so that was still when we were experimenting with shellfish waste. So we could make sheets, we could make cups, and then we could make like really random other things. So we're like, let's start with sheets. We can't sell a sheet as a bag because a bag is super cheap, but like we can sell a sheet for an exhibition that looks cool. So we made 2000 sheets. And then in making the 2000 sheets, we were like, nothing works. So we're like, okay, so sheets are probably not viable. Let's go to cups. And we were like, we can't, to be honest, we can't sell cups for food and drinks. We haven't like tested the material or, you know, all of the other regulation aspects that come from food. So we were like, well, we could make candles. So we tried to make candles and sell the candles. And again, wouldn't say that we had much success there, but we kept trying every three months and we had a very strong targeted goal and we had to sell it. Like that was it. We didn't have to sell many, but we had to sell it. And I don't know, it just like instilled in us this way of working. Like originally we didn't know how to make molds uh, because we couldn't get aluminum. So we would go to a scrapyard, we would get waste aluminum and then we would sand cast it in that shed into a mold to make the product. And I think because of that, we've made so many like connections. Like people like want to help us now because they were like, oh yeah, like I can't believe you've been making molds like this. Like, let me give you a mold. And... Now our product development cycles are slightly longer. So now like six months is a bit more realistic because three months is a bit too wild, especially for a physical product. But it just pushed us, you know, like we learned so much. And then we would see like how people interacted with the product. And then we would see like who would buy it, who wouldn't buy it, why they were interested in buying it. And that taught us a lot. So it was a different way. I mean, it was us trying to test our product in a software way, if that makes sense, as a physical Yeah. Product. 
And such a good go-to-market lesson, I think, for people listening. It's, you know, it's not going to work for every type of business or product, but, you know, especially in the climate space, I get the sense that there's a lot of entrepreneurs driven by, can we do this and how, how good it will be when we do this, but sometimes forgetting that at the end of the day, the way to ultimately scale it is to have a business. And so building something that people want to buy and holding ourselves accountable to people buying it is a really interesting early KPI to have established for yourselves. Yeah, it was definitely the wild, wild west in those days. Now, <laughs> well, so so I okay, I've I've set up the industry. I, you know, we've dived all the way into the backstory. What is the company today? Like, tell us what Shellworks is. Tell us what you're focused on, and let's you know make sure we cover the, the current present of the business. Yeah, I mean, so. Essentially, our goal has always been to make plastic waste a thing of the past. We actually think plastic is a great material, but it's not been used for the right kinds of applications. So how do we make materials that last only as long as they need to? When we started, as you rightly pointed out, we were looking at shellfish waste and extracting a biopolymer from that. But quite quickly, we came across two challenges, the first being material in the sense where it was an amazing material, but for limited applications. And we knew we wanted to go bigger than that. And the second was the product wasn't vegan. And that kind of was a clash with our core, like strong base customers because they care. Yeah, they want their products to be vegan because everything in it. And so then it felt a little bit jarring. So we pivoted, I would say a year after N, where we started coming across technologies, which I'm sure has been on the show before, which is polyhydroxyalkanoates. It's a type of bacteria that lives in soil and marine environments that in their cell has the ability to build up granules that if you extract it can behave like a thermoplastic. But if you throw it away, the same bacteria in marine and soil environments can see it as food and break it down. But Kind of the core issue we found with the producers in the market was that they were having difficulties getting it adopted by customers, as well as they didn't work on the material formulation piece or the manufacturing piece. So that started to become our easy way in. So we started looking at how do we formulate with these polymers for new applications and how do we create products that are monomaterial? essentially. So that's kind of been our core offering. And then we do, you know, we do a little bit of the upstream, but we kind of work with partners on that for the most part. And then we do a lot of the formulating design of the products, the manufacturing of the products, figuring out how to use like, you know, things that people don't think about. Like you want to Pantone match this jar. Sure. We'll figure out how to Pantone match this jar with a natural pigment on top of everything else that we're doing or, you need decoration like printing or engraving. Okay, we'll figure out how to do that as well in this material. So yeah, it's been quite a wild journey, I guess, till date. And we just did our first like big, we replaced a company's entire series of packaging, which was super exciting. And now we're looking at scaling from there. So yeah, it feels like we're at the stage where the product is out in the world, like we're alive, which is I think quite exciting. I love it. And going back to your, we want to sell a certain amount every three months. What's that looked like recently? It sounds like you, you, you're you hitting some commercial traction. <laughs> yeah. So we we kind of sold almost up to like 100,000 pieces of packaging to a brand called Heckles, who could not have been a better partner because they truly care about sustainability. You know, they do things like 
when they first got our piece of packaging, they they composted it in their home to see if it actually home composted. And I was like, amazing, like slightly terrified, but also like amazing that you did that. So many people wouldn't. And then, yeah, I think, you know, they also are having their own traction. They're a challenger brand. They're challenging the industry. And so they just got investment from Estee Lauder, which then opens up like, okay, well now we have the credibility of working with someone that Estee Lauder has invested in. And so that's kind of been a nice jumping off point for us. We're going to take a short break right now so our partner Yin can share more about the MCJ membership option. Hey folks, Yin here, a partner at MCJ Collective. Want to take a quick minute to tell you about our MCJ membership community, which was born out of a collective thirst for peer-to-peer learning and doing that goes beyond just listening to the podcast. We started in 2019 and have since then grown to 2,000 members globally. Each week, we're inspired by people who join with differing backgrounds and perspectives. And while those perspectives are different, what we all share in common is a deep curiosity to learn and bias to action around ways to accelerate solutions to climate change. Some awesome initiatives have come out of the community. A number of founding teams have met, nonprofits have been established, a bunch of hiring has been done, many early stage investments have been made, as well as ongoing events and programming like monthly women in climate meetups, idea jam sessions for early stage founders, climate book club, art workshops, and more. So whether you've been in climate for a while or just embarking on your journey, having a community to support you is important. If you want to learn more, head over to mcjcollective.com and click on the members tab at the top. Thanks and enjoy the rest of the show. All right, back to the show. Are there any use cases that you found so far you're not a fit with? Like qualifying leads is one thing as great leads, but also identifying, hey, we know within the first you know 20 minutes of talking to this person that we're not going to be a fit for them. What does that look like? Yeah, I mean, it's a tough one, right? So we are through and through like very hardcore in sustainability. That's like the company, that's our ethos, that's the team. If we do something, everyone's like, hey, like how are we going to transition away from doing this? Even if it's not to do with our product, like say, you know, hey, we have to pallet wrap our packaging when it goes on a pallet, like that's plastic. So that's just the vibe of the team. And sometimes when we speak to customers, like they have the, their heart in the right place, but maybe they want to only change like 60% of their packaging or maybe they aren't using natural ingredients. And we're very aware of like the challenges with end of life. And I think we don't want to create a new problem. So often if it has to be a halfway solution, we tend to stay away because it's probably not the right fit for us. And it might cause more issues that we aren't able to solve. So... It feels like when I talk to big manufacturers, when they're talking about early stage material startups, the thing that they always hammer on, which to me feels so like I can't believe that this is the the thing that is holding people back. But it's the color. You mentioned it. It's color matching. Right. It's the ability to get a piece of packaging to look exactly precisely like their brand color. Are you seeing that start to change or is that am I correctly reading that that is a big challenge? It's definitely part of the challenge. People are flexible, but to a point, right? So we work really hard to get them that match to their Pantone. And then we'll be like, okay, it's a natural pigment. So there's going to be a variability from here to here. And we'll show you that range so that you're aware. But yeah, I mean, it's it's what manufacturers care about. Like, how do you automatically fill this product on the line? How do you print it? What is the cycle time? Like, how long it takes? What are the yields? 
And I think all of this is like kind of what builds into that cost competitive piece, right? Like, or performance piece. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, back to our earlier part of the conversation, like to some extent that will become a brand promise of some companies, which is, yeah, we look natural. Like that's a good thing. And some are still going to want to have the, you know, super vivid artificial yellow part of their brand or whatever. And like, you know, to some extent, I predict over the next decade, they will start to become industry laggards. But maybe I'm maybe I'm eating my own dog food too much here. I don't know. I hope that we'll be able to provide them the vivid, essentially. And so that they don't have to compromise and then they can still express their brand in the way that they choose to and will find a way to do it in a sustainable way. I think that's kind of our promise or our vision. That's good. I mean, that's probably even a better answer than what I gave, because that's my answer was to some extent the green premium version of packaging. Right. Whereas you're saying, no, we can we can make it just better, but we'll do it in a in a better way. That's a better answer if you, you know, assuming you can pull it off. <laughs> I guess that's what we are all hoping on. Exactly. I mean, we're optimistic. Yeah. I mean, I also think it's sometimes it's also a frame of mind. Like I think when we started, people were like, there's no way you're going to be able to do these things. And we were like, nah, we can do it. <laughs> and so I think that naivety helps because it gives you that optimism to keep going because it can be a bit disheartening sometimes because it is quite it's quite difficult and it is a lot of failures you know like every three months we saw something and it didn't didn't work most of the time so so color we talked about what are the other big challenges that you know you said a brand that might be 60 percent of the way committed what are those last 40 percent of things that you found is hard to get them to fully move on? Well, I think the other 40% is that we're very new. So, for example, they have data saying a consumer will prefer X because of these reasons, but they don't have any data on us. Um, And so I think it's a risk. And I think the risk takers will take the risk. But we ultimately still fall into a category of taking, in their eyes, a big risk. Because what if we can't deliver? What if we are the supply chain problem? Like, I think it's the ones who are going to be truly committed to the cause that are like, hey, we're going to help you f- solve those problems. Mm, got it. So, I mean, that that's normal feedback for any startup, which is like, can you scale, right? Like, that's not necessarily even a, a natural biodegradable material question. Uh, it's just, can you hit my targets? What does that look like for you? Like, I presume you're having to build bigger and bigger bioreactors to enable more material. Like, what does scaling up mean for Shellworks? Yeah. So I think on the material front, we're fine because we work with ourselves but we also work with partners and that's how we come to like the formulation and we aren't as reliant onto our own targets so we're fine on that i think i think it's just operationally as well just catching up to the scale because it is it does work with traditional manufacturing processes but it it's not easy so it's not like you can put polypropylene in any tool in the world and it will work it's not as straightforward So that stuff takes time. And I think for us, we think about scaling in like 10x multiples. So we did first do like a thousand pieces. We did 5,000, we did 20,000, then we did 100,000. Now we're looking at doing 300 to 500,000 and then a million. Like that's how we think about it. And that's, that's more of a, sometimes a time factor more than anything else. It just unfortunately takes that time to build it up. And, you know, I'm loosely familiar with what 
the manufacturing process looks like with traditional plastics. You know, you have injection molding and sort of large scale manufacturing facilities. What does it look like with your materials? It's pretty much the same. So we we still use injection molding. In fact, we have like a 50 ton injection molder downstairs in our office. There's a process called, it's like formulation, which happens through a compounder. We have a pretty large piece of kit that does that as well. But we try to leverage industry standard equipment and make changes on our end so that when we go to third party providers to do very large runs, like for this 100,000 order, we had to do that. We kind of knew one for one what's going to work, what's not going to work. Yeah. And so as you think about scaling, like right now, you're having to do a little bit of everything, right? You're having to actually design the material. You're having to then do the industrial design around what the packaging would look like. You're having to design the dyes. You're having to do the dye testing. You're having to design the sealant, I presume. And then you're having to actually manufacture it at scale. As your company grows, I don't expect you would think you need to be world-class in every single one of those. Where do you see your core focus being over time? And where do you hope that the industry can start to adopt your technology? Yeah, so I think there's kind of three core value adds. The first is a little bit on that future R&D space where we can work with suppliers to input to them, hey, actually... If you design your strains slightly differently, it's probably going to be more commercial based on our insights of really understanding polymer production. The second is the material formulation. And I think this is something in natural materials that just hasn't been explored as much. Like companies like DuPont and you know, 3M, they do this large scale for traditional plastics, but no one's really looking at it for natural materials. And then the third will be the engineering of the solution so that we can provide a natural sealant, so that we can provide a monomaterial pump, because you kind of do need to think about the product in a slightly different way with these materials as well. And that's also starting to become a value add to customers. It's like when we say, oh, hey, I mean, the sealant is a big one. No one has had a natural gasket. And we were like, oh, we just solved that problem for ourselves. And they're like, well, can you sell us the gasket now? Because we need it for all of our other products. And I was like, okay, we can think about doing that. I never thought about it. But I think sometimes because we solve problems to ourselves, we find new opportunities. Walk us through that use case. I want, I want to understand more about, about how you solved it for yourselves and then how you turned to yeah. commercialize it. So we, we wanted to make a cream container, right? And a cream container is something can, that can hold multiple different types of materials, so oils, serums, creams, water. And so sealing it and having it you know, as close to an airtight seal is pretty important. And the way that traditionally you have it is a, if you open any container at the top, you'll see this like foam plastic material and no one's been able to get rid of that. And we wanted to ship a jar and we were like, hey, we want it to be more material because we don't want to compromise on the end of life. So we've kind of been developing a blend of this material in the background and then we were shooting some parts and we were able to create a sealant gasket that is monomaterial. Yeah, so it's kind of a happy accident, I guess, maybe, because we were like, we have to solve this. I mean, we looked at so many different things. Like, I don't know, we were developing our own cork glue for some time because most corks are bound together by polyurethane, actually. And so that's like another whole 
myth that we were like, oh, we guess we can't really work on that. We developed like a shive component in the interim because the shive is also another type of sealant and can be a rigid material. And now we have this flexible gasket that we can use. Yeah. I love it. And it sounds like that's part of just the culture you built is if you've set an uncompromising internal culture that everything we do is is sustainable, you'll solve your own internal problems first and then some of those may be commercialized. Yeah, I think I think that's what we've started to notice is that uncompromising nature, even though difficult or challenging, has opened up a lot of opportunities for us. What have been the biggest pressure tests on that in your internal culture where you, you've even, you know, had to have hard conversations with each other about things? I mean, there are so many, you know, like we were having trouble molding it and we had sent it to an external supplier and it was a large portion of material and they were like, hey, it's working now. And then when we looked at how they made it work, they added like a percent of polypropylene. And so then we had like batches of material that we had to like, we don't want to waste this material, but we don't want to ship this material. So what do we do with this material? Or we were having trouble integrating something into our formula and they had to put it into like an oil. And the only oil that they had on hand was mineral oil. Then mineral oil is petroleum based. <laughs> and then again, we end up with batches of material that we don't know what we can do with. So we have now many bags of purge material that we use internally to purge the machines. <laughs> That was the use case of what you do with this sort of tainted materials. You use it, you use it as, as essentially cleaning for your, your machines. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, there's so many things. Sometimes we just have to say like, hey, we, we're going to put it in a box and we're going to find a use for it, like at some point. And often we do. But yeah, I think we don't let it leave us to a customer. We either choose not to ship it or we choose to delay it or yeah most people wouldn't hear about all of the things that we scrapped in the background awesome what's next (laughs) it's an exciting time i mean we have quite some exciting new product development as well as scaling up our current range so kind of for context we sell like these cream containers and this little thing that we call tippy which is our take on a monomaterial dropper. It's the first iteration. We have more to come. And then in the background, yeah, we're working on new products that are more complicated, like a, you know, monomaterial pump, like re-envisioning what that could look like, because it's a huge problem for the industry. So I think we're keen on taking those big challenges, like challenges that even plastics couldn't take on. We want to go for it and find a way to I think be that better packaging. Like we don't compromise on it and we're going to give it to you sustainable, performant and cost competitive. Well, and presumably, you know, in this supply chain challenged world we live in today, having monomaterial packaging should be a huge benefit, (laughs) right? It should be a huge simplification. Exactly. And so I think we'll start to see the benefits of that as well. I think simplistic is going to push us in a better direction because we're going to require less material, things are going to be lighter, and it's going to be less components. And what does the, I don't know if you would call it sales, but you know, probably more business development process look like for you right now when you're out talking to a brand who has a new problem? You know, it sounds like a lot of times you're randomly coming up with stuff in your internal culture 
and you think, oh, maybe we could productize this. But I assume in other instances, you're out talking to a company and they say, hey, we have this issue. How much of your conversations have to revolve around R&D today and how much of it is turning more into a straight sales conversation? It's a shift we're going through right now. So we created a catalog of products and that catalog should be going into a sales cycle. And in the background, the challenge is that packaging companies or the beauty companies we're targeting, they use different types of packaging and it's hard for them to switch with just one SKU. So in the background, that's what we're working on is what the future of our catalog could look like by taking in the customer insights. So it's a little 50-50, I would say. And we're trying to also split our time a little bit more like that because it has been like 90, 10, 90% R&D and 10% sales. But yeah, it's an interesting transition. But yeah, we've, we've been fortunate. Like it's such a big problem. Customers reach out to us all the time. So we get to have very fluid, honest conversations with them and we can get those insights without having to search for them. It's probably also going to require new and different skill sets on the team to get people who love scaling versus people who love building or, you know, experimenting. Yeah, we have already kind of gone through a little bit of that transition. But yeah, we try to find the both like it's a unicorn often, but someone who likes to still work with their hands, but is like a bit structured and was like, okay, I can do this for an hour, but now I'm going to go and like scale everything. But yeah, I think eventually we'll have to transition to people in general who are more growth focused. I think it's always the challenge of startups is that the company changes every three to six months because what you're trying to solve is such a different type of problem. Yep. From a capitalization perspective, you've raised, I think, just under 8 million USD or so in funding. Is that about right? Yeah. So I think we raised like 7.1 or 2 million to date. And yeah, we were fortunate enough to just, we raised our seed round in May. So pretty recently from Local Globe in the UK. And then we had a number of US investors as well as like Founder Collective and Box Group. That's great. And Box, I think, has been involved with you all since close to the beginning. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, Box Group was the changing of the tide for us. I never really thought about investment and I was very like skeptical. But then I met Box and I was like, I really love them. Let's do it. And they've been like instrumental or like, yeah, just the biggest cheerleaders. How did you meet them originally? What did that look like? Because it sounds like you were like some like crazy hackers off in Wales, like doing stuff. And then all of a sudden, oh, we're going to build a venture scaled business. Like, what did that look like? I mean, to be honest, it came from maybe not the best experience. Like we were raising funding. It was quite challenging in the UK and we kind of had a fund that we didn't really align with. And so we'd done all this effort. We were close to closing round and then I kind of decided we're not going forward. And then we were like, OK, so now what? We just said no to any money and we have to start from scratch. And I reached out to all my friends in the U.S. and I was like, hey, I'm starting from scratch. I hadn't thought about raising from the U.S. at the time. I was like, can you just give me any and all advice? And I probably had connected with so many VCs in a span of the week that people were like, wait, who is this company and what are they doing? And so I got that introduction to Adam from that. And that's how it all ended up working out. But yeah, I think... That negative reaction was probably the best thing that could have happened to me because I was just so, I don't know, I was much more scrutinous of who was coming on board of the journey and also 
much more honest about who I was and what we needed. And I think that's kind of the best way to raise funding is just like being on the same page as the partners you're bringing on. It sounds like a continued thread I'm hearing about how you're building the business, which is being really true to your principles. It's tough sometimes, but I think, yeah, it's, it's hard to move away from that. I think it's the underpinning of like who we are as people and that's done us, it's served us really well, being true to that. Well, for those listening who are inspired by your story, where are you needing help right now? I'm always really interested to speak to people with like new, unique material needs. I think we're trying to learn more and more about the ecosystem. And then, yeah, I mean, if you're interested in joining Shellworks, we'll be hiring for a bunch of new roles soon. So yeah, we are looking for some good, strong people to come and join us. Awesome. Incia, what should I have asked that I didn't ask? (laughs) I think you covered it all. This was great. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Well, so did I. Thanks for joining. And I can't wait to see all the amazing brands that are going to be winning design awards in the future for sustainable packaging, not just flashy brand packaging. Yeah, it's going to happen. Or how about sustainable and flashy brand packaging, right? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, fantastic. Thanks for your time today. No, thank you. Thanks again for joining us on the My Climate Journey podcast. At MCJ Collective, we're all about powering collective innovation for climate solutions by breaking down silos and unleashing problem-solving capacity. To do this, we focus on three main pillars. Content, like this podcast and our weekly newsletter. Capital, to fund companies that are working to address climate change. And our member community, to bring people together, as Yen described earlier. If you'd like to learn more about MCJ Collective, visit us at www.mcjcollective.com. And if you have guest suggestions, feel free to let us know on Twitter at MCJPod. Thanks, and see you next episode.